Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Accounts of the Second World War usually involve tales of bravery in battle or stoicism on the home front, as the Allied nations stood together against fascism. However, the war looks very different when seen through the eyes of the 60,000 conscientious objectors who refused to take up arms and whose stories, unlike those in the First World War, have been almost entirely forgotten. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and as nations like Ukraine and Sweden, Russia and Finland reintroduce or bolster levels of conscription and national service today, it seemed like a good time to look into the history and the experience of those who chose not to serve. To do this, I've invited Tobias Kelly onto the podcast. Now, Tobias is the author of a new book, Battles of Conscience, British Pacifists and the Second World War, published by Penguin. And it's through Tobias that we get to hear the stories of what motivated these people of conscience. Enjoy. Hi Tobias, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. We talk a lot about war on this podcast. After all, it is the Warfare Podcast. We talk a bit about peace, we talk a bit about pacifism, but one thing that we have not touched upon is conscientious objection. And so I'm really keen to get into this topic today. Could you tell us maybe what a conscientious objector is? In the context of the book I've written, a conscientious objector is someone who objected to fighting on the grounds of something called conscience. And the big question for them and the British state was, well, what is this thing? After all, what does it sound like? What does it look like? What does it feel like when we come across it? How did they know they were a conscientious objector and not objecting for another reason? And how do you even begin to start to prove that you're objecting on grounds of conscience, as opposed to, you know, understandably having the natural human fear of putting your life at risk in war. 
It's a really good question, and it's a question that conscientious objectors themselves grappled with constantly. In a very narrow sense, they had to stand before a tribunal of three judges, and within half an hour, they had to persuade them that they were sincere and genuine. But more generally, they had to, and probably more importantly, they often had to prove to themselves and to each other and to their loved ones and their families and their friends that their conscience was sincere. And for that reason, many of them were constantly testing themselves. They joined ambulance units and went to the front line to patch up the wounded as a way of proving to themselves and to others that they were sincere in their conscience and they weren't refusing to take up arms out of fear or laziness or cowardice. And so when we think of conscientious objectors, we think of those who perhaps stayed home on the home front. They avoided the horrors of war, but they also avoided fighting for the freedoms that were so heavily and painfully won from the Second World War. But that's kind of not the truth, is it? Because like you're saying, they went out there and they put their lives at risk. But the key thing was based on their conscience. They didn't want to kill another human being. So do we know how many conscientious objectors were involved in, let's say, being medics during the Second World War or were involved in other parts of the military mechanisms and machinery? There were about 60,000 British conscientious objectors in total. And a very small proportion of them ended up in jail because they refused to do anything apart from refused to fight. But the vast majority of that 60,000 took up some other activities of national importance. Medical work, working in hospitals, ambulance drivers, working on farms. There were a few who even volunteered to have medical experiments carried out on them as a way of showing that they weren't trying to shirk. The book follows one man called Tom Burns, who was a teacher when war started. On the day war was declared, he volunteered for the Friends Ambulance Unit, a Quaker-associated ambulance unit, and was right on the front line in Finland over that first winter when most of the British army was still at home in their barracks back in Britain. As the war went on, he followed the front line, and he was close to various front lines in North Africa. And in Greece, he was actually taken prisoner of war by the Germans and spent nearly two years as a prisoner alongside other soldiers from Britain and the rest of the British Empire. So it's very clear to say that conscientious objectors were a key part of the war effort, of the war, I suppose, it's not war-making capacity, but certainly the fight to ensure that the Allies could win and to ensure the freedom of Britain during the Second World War. It's an interesting question and a question that they themselves debated a great deal. You know, how separate and distinct were they and could they be from the population? Many of them decided that the world, the country was mobilized for war and therefore it was impossible to cut themselves off entirely. I describe in the book a man called Roy Ridgway. He also volunteered with the French Ambulance Unit. He writes very movingly in his diary that... The only way in which a pacifist could not be complicit in the war at that moment was by committing suicide, and that is not a very pacifist thing to do. So for many of them, the choice or the problem was just how far and in what ways they be involved in the war effort, and how far should they push back against it. So should they do ambulance work or not? The Friends Ambulance Unit, interestingly, although often associated with the Quakers, was not officially recognized by the Friends because it was seen as going too far, 
crossing over that line. They wore uniforms. They moved and relied on the military for their supplies and so on. So this line between war and peace, between contributing to the war effort and pushing against it, was one they constantly grappled with. And it's particularly important because many of them, although not all of them, and we can talk about that later if you like, saw themselves as deeply patriotic, as committed to Britain. And they even argued that there was something particularly British, although we can debate this, about freedom of conscience, about being committed to follow your conscience in moments of crisis. Well, that's an interesting point there. So what did political leaders, military leaders in the UK, what did Churchill think of conscientious objectors? So in contrast to the First World War, where conscientious objectors had an immensely difficult time, were imprisoned and stigmatized and given white feathers. And that's the image we generally have of conscientious objectors. In the Second World War, there was more of a, I suppose you might call it a begrudging tolerance of them. And there were several reasons for that. The first was that in the First World War, pragmatically and practically, as many political leaders pointed out, they learned that it was practically almost impossible to force a conscientious objector to fight if they didn't want to. So it was a waste of time. And there weren't that many of them. 60,000 in a whole country mobilized to fight, if not that many. So they weren't undermining in a profound numerical sense uh, the war effort. So a begrudging kind of sense that practically let's not make this too big a fight. But on top of that, there was a sense that if and again, this is a big if, if the war was being fought in the name of freedom, freedom of conscience was one of those freedoms through which it was being fought. And Winston Churchill, who you mentioned, was on the record saying, you know, we should not scapegoat these people because they are fundamentally committed to freedom, a similar freedom to which we are committed to as well. So because that kind of respect for individual rights was seen at the time as being one of the key things that divided Britain from fascist Europe, there was a sense that we may not agree with them, but we give them the space to hold their opinions. And that's really important. And that's the overwhelming sense when you look at the memoirs and the letters and the diaries of conscientious objectors. They say that people treated them with that sense of tolerance. It's important also to say that yeah, they could have a very difficult time indeed. Many of them, sometimes when they're in the armed forces, on a few occasions were beaten and treated very badly. Friends could fall out with them. Families could get very upset with them. Mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, boyfriends and girlfriends. But on the whole, there was this sense of tolerance with all that implies towards them. You know, Tobias, I can see exactly why you're fascinated by this topic about why people will object to fighting in total wars, wars of national survival. And especially at the beginning of the war, I can see, you know, as people started to be conscripted from April 39, and then that extended to all men between the ages of 18 to 41, you can see how conscientious objectors must have grown in number. But as the war continued, and as some of the horrific details of the Nazi regime and fascism came through, did any change their mind in terms of being conscientious objectors? Yes, quite a few did. And one of the things that marks them out is they were constantly reflecting and thinking and questioning whether they were doing the right thing. I mean, to go back a little bit, it's also important to remember that in the mid, even up into fairly late in the 1930s, kind of pacifism and anti-war attitudes were a part of middle opinion, if you like. They were an acceptable part of many people's views across the political spectrum. When war was declared, 
they suddenly had to confront what it meant to be a conscientious objector. So many people in the anti-war movement did sign up to fight. And it was just the few who are left standing who became conscientious objectors, if you like. Others found other ways not to fight. You know, they found ways of getting office jobs or working in reserved occupations. It's only, after all, a very small minority in any war who actually go to the front line and fire weapons. So the conscientious objectors stand out in a sense because they wanted to stand out as people who refused to fight. But as the war went on and they had to confront what it meant to be a conscientious objector or a pacifist in the midst of the war, they did reflect on what they did and many of them changed their minds. It's also important to say that not all conscientious objectors were pacifists. The law didn't require that you objected to fight on the grounds of pacifism. It just said that you had a conscientious objection to bearing arms. So some of them were libertarians, some of them were international socialists, some of them were Scottish nationalists, and so on. So that was all part of the mix. But some of them changed their mind when they, yeah, they joined the Friends Ambulance Unit. And Tom Burns, who I mentioned earlier, writes very movingly in his letters about how when he was in Egypt with the Friends Ambulance Unit, several of the members left because they simply decided there was no practical difference between what they were doing in the Friends Ambulance Unit and there would have been if they joined the Royal Army Medical Corps or so on. So some of them left at that point when they decided practically what's the difference between being a pacifist in uniform and being a soldier. Others left gradually over time when they began to learn more about the horrors of the Holocaust. That comes up more, though, after the war, when people began to reflect on what had happened. And in the book, I write a bit about a man called Ronald Duncan, who was a playwright and spent much of the war running a community farm as part of his conditions of conscientious objection. After the war, he was sent to Berlin for a cultural exchange. And again, he writes about how seeing the destruction of Berlin made him feel regrets and guilt about the way he'd spent the war. He was also friends with the composer Benjamin Britten, who was a pacifist and a conscientious objector. Immediately after the war was sent to the concentration camps with Yehudi Menuhin, the violinist, to play recitals in the former concentration camps. And according to his biographer, what he saw there marked the rest of his life and ran through the rest of the music he composed over the following decades. So this sense of regret and guilt, but also determination is something that runs throughout many lives of conscientious objectors. It's fascinating to hear that there was some regret and almost a darkness that comes to some people after the war and the realities of the brutalness of the Nazi regime comes to light. But I still don't think that takes away from the fact And it's the point that you've just made, that there is a bravery that comes with being a conscientious objector. Because like you said, there's so many easier ways to avoid fighting on the front line. You can join those reserve occupations. You can get yourself an office job or a desk job or working far from the front line within the military. But you have to take a moral stand if you have to be a conscientious objector and you have to go through that tribunal. know that some of literature's greatest characters were real people. It's so fascinating, isn't it, that some of the Three Musketeers are also based on real soldiers. That Sir Walter Raleigh wasn't all that he's been cracked up to be. 
chemist, poet, scholar, historian, courtier. He could have been great in all these different things. And that if your name is Dudley, you better watch your back. So the Tudors, each one of them took something from the Dudleys, either by working with a member of the Dudley family or, of course, by having one executed. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and I'm learning all this and much more, bringing you not just the Tudors, twice a week, every week. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I can understand here that this must be very much a male pursuits as well as it's men who are being sent to the front lines. But were there women who were conscientious objectors? Yes, interestingly, there were, but they often found it much more difficult to be recognised as a conscientious objector for all sorts of interesting reasons. So I write about a woman called Stella Sinjin, who at the start of the war was working as a vet and was also doing two voluntary jobs. She volunteered to work in a shelter underneath Hungerford Bridge for down-and-outs and homeless who had been shunned and excluded from the shelters in the tube stations because they were too dirty or drunk or too chaotic. So Westminster Council asked her and a group of Christian pacifists to set up the special shelter, so she spent time there. And she also worked as an ambulance driver during the Blitz ferrying the wounded backwards and forwards and saw some horrific things. But then when they introduced partial conscription for women into non-military roles, despite the fact that she was volunteering in a shelter, that she was driving an ambulance, the Ministry of Labour tried to direct her to an office job somewhere as part of her responsibilities. And she simply refused to do it. She was a Christian pacifist. She thought she could much better help and serve the people of London by working in a shelter and driving an ambulance. And she said her conscience will not allow her to be directed by what she described as the war machine. 
And she spent time in Holloway Prison as a result of that. And it has written very interestingly about the time and her experiences there, but saw that experience as a way of testing, again, of testing her conscience. Was this really conscience speaking to her, or was it some other more obscure motivation? But Stella's interesting because, in many ways, her conscience was recognized by the state as it sent her to prison. Many other women who wanted to be recognized as conscientious objectors found it much more difficult to actually physically register as a conscientious objector because the Ministry of Labour officials who would be in charge of registering as a conscientious objector would often say, well, you can just go and do something else. We're not really going to force you to do this thing we have told you to. There were women like Stella who demanded to be recognised as a conscientious objector, even though it would be much easier to find other ways through the system. This inner turmoil is also so interesting. It takes you back to some of those conscientious objectors and pacifists from the First World War, those you mentioned who were given white feathers. I can think of some of the most high-profile ones. You can think of your Vera Britons, who would go on to be a pacifist into the Second World War, although she served as a nurse in the First World War. And of course, people like Siegfried Sassoon, the poet, who is a decorated war hero, then towards the end of the First World War, becomes a staunch anti-war advocate and faces deep criticism for that. But one thing that unites a lot of these pacifists and these conscientious objectors is they're most certainly from middle-class, upper-class backgrounds. And it's almost a luxury to be a conscientious objector because you've got maybe a bit of money behind you, a bit of status. Is that the case into the Second World War? Is it usually people from more privileged backgrounds who have that choice to be a conscientious objector? It's interesting. And I'd say in the Second World War, the picture is much, much more mixed. But it partly depends on which part of the country you're in. I spent a very interesting few days in the archives of the University of Aberdeen, where the former vice-chancellor left his papers. And he was a judge sitting on one of these tribunals up in northeast Scotland. And he left all the application forms of the people who appeared before him. And the vast majority of them were not, you know, the teachers, the university students, the artists and the poets that we stereotypically imagine them to be. They were fishermen and carpenters and labourers. That's partly because of the presence in the northeast of Scotland of large amounts of particular Protestant churches, Plymouth Brethren and so on, who on the whole did not fight in the Second World War for religious reasons. Right, I see. So that makes sense. But then more broadly, across the country, what sort of flavour do we get in terms of social economic background? The kind of more regional efforts I can understand, and you already mentioned about Scottish nationalism as well, but is there more of a kind of a broader sense of who these people were across Britain? Or is it not as simple enough to pigeonhole people like that? Was it the case they just came from lots of different backgrounds and we can't say there's just one type of person that's a conscientious objector? It is very, very difficult to generalise about a conscientious objector, partly because of the type of people they were. They were, by definition, individualistic and disruptive and followed their own line. So they did come from a broad swathe of the population. So there were many particular parts of the country, socialists and anarchists, who tended to be, not always, but with large numbers of industrial labourers amongst them who refused to fight, similarly with Scottish nationalists. But it is true there were probably a disproportionate number of poets 
and writers and musicians. So the book describes Fred Urquhart, who was a Scottish writer in the 1930s and 40s, wrote wonderfully about what it was like to be in Edinburgh at that time. But Tom Burns also wanted to be a writer who's also in the book. And Ronald Duncan was a playwright. But I think that's partly because there's something about the grappling with conscience and the attempt to make this otherwise intangible, very personal and internal thing public, to bring it out there, to make it tangible so that people can see it and touch it, that is very similar to the artistic process, to poetry, to making music, to painting. So as well as Fred Urquhart and Ronald Duncan and others, Benjamin Britten and Michael Tippett, you know, two of the most influential composers of the 20th century in Britain, were conscientious objectors. They were painters. Harold Pinter, after the war, as a, you know, as a writer, was a conscientious objector. So there is some kind of affinity between artistic sensibilities, if you like, and conscientious objection, I feel. So it's the suffering artist that also <laughs> suffers internally. <laughs> during times of war. And tell us, Tobias, what's the worst thing that would happen to you if you were a conscientious objector or indeed if you were found that you wanted to be a conscientious objector but you didn't have the grounds to be? So the the two ways of answering that question, and the first is only partly tongue-in-cheek, in many ways the worst thing that could happen is you could be ignored, that you were determined to go out there and have your conscience recognised and no one paid any attention, they didn't care what you did. And there are examples of conscientious objectors who just disappeared from the system and no one ever called them up. But the most difficult thing in some ways that could happen was something called cat and mouse, which happened a lot in the First World War, where you would have your claim refused and you would go to prison and on release, you would be enlisted again. You would have your objection refused, and then you'd be enlisted again. So you'd be going in and out and in and out and in and out of prison. And there's some examples, particularly amongst Jehovah's Witnesses, of people who went into prison multiple times because they could never quite reach that threshold of proving that their conscience was genuine. That was relatively rare because more often than not, the tribunal said, well, you've been to prison, you've been willing to go to prison, we're going to take that as evidence that your conscience is sincere and genuine because it would be much easier to have done something else. And therefore, the second time around, we will accept your application. But this cat and mouse constantly going in and out of prison was probably the worst punishment they could get. And I'm sure prison was no fun for a conscientious objector. Prison was no fun for anyone, I think, is the important thing to say. Stella Sinjin writes about her time and wrote an interesting pamphlet on it describing what it was like to be a prisoner And in her account, it wasn't necessarily any worse to be a conscientious objector than an ordinary prisoner because prisons at that time were really tough. And similarly, if you were imprisoned because you had been enlisted in the army but refused to put on uniform, as sometimes happened to conscientious objectors, and you were sent to a military prison, that could be really, really miserable. It could be really tough, but it could also be really tough for other soldiers and the accounts of conscientious objectors describe very interestingly and movingly how difficult and how yeah you know, this was a British military that took physical punishment very very seriously and conscientious objectors were subjected to it just as much as other soldiers were there were a few incidents and significant and important incidents of conscientious objectors particularly up in a camp near Liverpool but also in Elfacrum in the southwest of them being treated 
particularly badly and brutally and being forced marched and you know, having all the worst kind of standard military punishments. But on the whole, they were treated fairly similarly as the rest of the military was treated when they were subject to military discipline. Well, Tobias, thank you so much for taking us through this history. I suppose I've got one final question for you. Given the fact that there were 60,000 conscientious objectors in Britain during the Second World War, what were the legacies of this? Can we still see anything on the cultural landscape in the United Kingdom that we can say has a tangible link to that period in time when people base their objection to war and their objection to fight on their morals and their conscience and what it meant for them to be human? It's an interesting and important question, I think, because their legacy is massive, but often hidden. It's often when you read people's obituaries or accounts of their life, it will mention if they were a conscientious objector. Because many of them went on to do truly remarkable things. They went on to be MPs and lords and senior legal figures and senior diplomats. They went on to be significant and important artists. And you could see their conscience in their work. But I think most importantly and most significantly, their ethical commitments and drives can be seen in the history of British human rights and humanitarianism. So... Oxfam, for example, the first generation of people who worked for Oxfam overseas were conscientious objectors, have worked in the Friends Ambulance Unit. So their ethic kind of runs through the history of Oxfam. Equally, Amnesty International. Amnesty International, one of the key figures in Amnesty International, Eric Baker, in its founding, was a Quaker conscientious objector. And he is the reason, or one of the main reasons, that early on they decided to use the phrase prisoners of conscience as their first campaign. And they also said they were only going to adopt prisoners of conscience people who had refused violence. So if you'd taken up violence or said to support violence early on, you could not be adopted by Amnesty International as a prisoner of conscience. So their ideas, their ethics often didn't, continue or weren't most obviously seen in pacifism or anti-war activism because they splintered off in different directions. They went into humanitarianism and human rights or creative arts or the war on poverty or so on. So two of the world's largest human rights NGOs can trace their history back to conscientious objectors during the Second World War. And if we look at their impact today in places like Ukraine or all around the world where there is conflict, well, then they are saving lives and trying to create the conditions for peace globally. And that is one hell of a legacy. Tobias, thank you so much for bringing us this fascinating history. Tell us, where can people read more about this? If they're interested, they can read my book, Battles of Conscience, British Pacifists in the Second World War, which is out now with Chateau and Windus. Perfect. Tobias, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.